vacation this week and we are all alone yes when we were discussing like what we we're going to talk about i completely forgot about this but you totally just reminded me somehow for an undisclosed amount of time an, an embarrassing amount of time i've been trying to like just finish the copy on my website uh-huh. um, and at, at one point i put my description or part of my description was official jason charn stan <laughs> i love it right did you finish your JavaScript framework you were going to build while I was out? Yes, I named it Alpine JS three. <laughs> it's done. It's out there. It's out in the wild. You can check it out. Is Alpine three out? Alpine three is out. I uh, I started using Alpine mostly around the time Tail and UI came out, right? Because when the examples mm-hmm. came out, they were all like they had Alpine in them, right? But I kind of stopped using it. There was a lot of backlash to all that Alpine. And I never felt that way because I kind of liked it. Because to me, it was just like a way to write even less JavaScript, right? To write it in your markup, which like it helped me think about it because like we were writing a lot of stimulus at the time. And it was like even more from stimulus, like you can have even less JavaScript with Alpine. Like you can do for loops and you can. And I think the main thing for me that like made it stick out a lot more than stimulus, especially as I've like explored it even more as of recent, is the fact that you can use templates, like easily use templates and like filtering and search and looping and conditionals and like inline dispatch events and things like that. I think personally I would choose Alpine over stimulus. All right. And the recent updates I think have made it even more cool. It's interesting because I'm looking I want Alpine's website. They boast 15 attributes, six properties and two methods. And it looks like the methods are like, if you actually got into JavaScript, you could define like different data and things like that, which is also kind of cool if you wanted the hybrid approach. Like you could actually still use stimulus, but really power it from the markup. That's kind of cool. Yeah, you could combine it with stimulus. I don't know why you would, but just to touch on the data thing, for instance, like it allows you to define data on an element. So let's say I have a section element that wraps like a list of blog posts, for instance. And what is a common pattern, but is really hard to do is maybe you have like a, an input at the top of that where you can filter the articles or apply tags that filter them. And doing that is incredibly hard with just the tools out of the box, right? And it's hard to do it with stimulus too, because at the end of the day, you have to basically template out these JavaScript elements that don't exist when the page first is loaded. And what you can do is basically use this x.data attribute and define a JSON array or just object on an element with all this data. And then you can loop through all that data. And if you went by looping through all that data versus just, I don't know, using like a dot each loop and like rendering it all like with Rails and Ruby, the dynamic property of it allows you to do that searching and tagging and all these other things. And if you're using something like Bridgetown, it's super duper easy to do this because Bridgetown has this method called JSONify. So all you have to do is take x.data, 
equals, and then you use an ERB helper, like whatever, JSONify, and then your object, and then you instantly have like a templated out list of all your objects. I mean, so there's trade-offs, obviously, because it's not there in the initial page load, right? It gets initialized. So if you're concerned about like, oh, well, I always want the data to be present because that makes it easier to index and all these other things, then maybe it's not the right choice. But if you're wanting to do these like custom dynamic things where you need to be able to like dynamically change the amount of elements in a list, it's, I don't know, I think Alpine is, I really like it. I feel like it has some of the features that I wish Stimulus would adopt. With the recent Alpine 3 changes, I think it's just, it's gotten even better. And like the community seems to be kind of growing around a little bit. They had Alpine Day, which was like a mini conference they put on with some great talks. So I don't know. I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. We talked a little bit before, but I've been low-key back in action this week. And I've been trying out Inertia JS, which it feels like forever ago. It was definitely pre-COVID. We actually talked on Remote Ruby with Jonathan, who created Inertia. Episode 66. Perfect. At the time, I like to imagine that you just like have all the episodes indexed in your brain. I would like for you to keep thinking that. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. At the time, I didn't really mess with it much. Like I thought it was a really cool idea, but this is like maybe a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I really like using Tailwind. Same. More so, I really like using Tailwind UI, but I find it kind of painful to use Tailwind UI with just like vanilla templates, even using something like view components. Some of the things I think that are like difficult for me is like you have to rewire all the JavaScript functionality. That's really the most painful, but also it is kind of hard, even with view component, view component definitely makes it easier. It's kind of hard for me to see components in Rails, like in terms of the view layer. So Tailwind UI, for anyone who's not familiar, Tailwind has a JavaScript package called, I think it's Headless UI. Yep. It's a set of JavaScript components in React and Vue that are made for accessibility. They have all the functionality in terms of, I mean, obviously it's written JavaScript, but if you choose a sidebar in mobile, like it has the mobile settings where like if you tap the menu, it slides out, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, basically I'm like, That seems like the dream, but as a Rails developer, typically we're like, no React, no JavaScript. So finally, I decided just to bite the bullet because I have React experience and I thought Inertia sounds cool. So what Inertia does is Inertia has a server-side and a client-side library for each. They have a Rails adapter and a Laravel adapter. And they have a Vue, React, and Svelte adapter. And... Basically, what happens is instead of using something like React Router or I don't know what the routing library in Vue would be, it keeps your server-side routes. And then what happens is basically you're still building a full-stack application. The front end is an SPA, but your Rails controller methods are actually what's responsible for telling Inertia which like page is what they call it to render. And it sounds magical, And it kind of is. So I like thought, okay, let's fire up a project this week and pretend I know nothing, which I don't. And yeah, I've been kind of toying with it. It's pretty cool. So we had Jonathan on the show and I think I had to cut out of that one early. But 
I don't know. Inertia just existed in my brain as like a JavaScript thing, waves hands liberally. But when I was driving to Phoenix and moving, I listened to episode 291 of the Bike Shed podcast. It's called All Things Inertia JS with Jonathan Ricknick. And it's basically just Chris Toomey and Jonathan talking about inertia. And I guess it didn't really click for me when he was on our show. But when I listened to the Bike Shed and heard him explain it and also then heard him talk about the integrations with Rails and how you would use it with Rails and why you would use it with Rails. I think that was kind of the missing component and like how it does these things, certain things differently and like why his perspective on the project. It made me want to use it after hearing him explain it like that. So this has been something that kind of popped back up on my radar too. I haven't had a need for it, right? Sure. One of the other things that's appealing is that, so like I mentioned, it's designed to like work with Rails, but you're not necessarily building an API. You're just building typical like controller actions with routes. And instead of creating Rails templates, you from your controller actions say render inertia, tell it the page, and then you give it any data you want to pass through. But that also means since you're not building like an API with this thing, you can do your standard old like device authentication because it can just read from the cookie store. And it sounds silly, but that alone is like a hurdle that you don't have to like worry about if you're a Rails developer. And so yeah, I dug in, I created just like a BS app. And the first thing I did was get Inertia installed. Pretty simple. Next thing I did was install Tailwind and Tailwind UI, pretty simple. And then what I did was I made a dashboard controller with an index action. And I made a dashboard index page with Inertia. And I made it render that by just in the action doing nothing else saying like, Render inertia dashboard index page. And from there, I made commit first off. That's important. Then I made a layout in React. But what I did was I just copied one of the layouts from Tailwind UI, literally just click copy, click paste, and it just freaking worked. And like all the menus that like close and hide, all that stuff just worked. And it was awesome. And it, really felt like the future. Anytime something just works, like regardless of how it is, if I follow your documentation and it works, the amount of likeliness that I am to use your like thing is so much higher. Because if I try to use your thing and it doesn't work, it's almost like the metric of users who try to check out online. And if something stops them from checking out online, the majority of users are never going to try to purchase that product ever again. It's the same thing when I'm trying out libraries like this. But I try to use your thing and it doesn't work out of the box, then the majority of the time I'm just done. Yeah. There's been some like, as I get deeper, there's been a couple gotchas, I guess you could say. But for the most part, it's just been kind of plug and play. So then I was like, you know what? Let's see what it's like to work with some data. So like I made a projects controller, I made a project model, and I just threw like a table in there. Once again, just copied a Tailwind UI React component, pasted it, and then fed the data from Rails to it. And I was like, okay, it's fast. It's pretty cool. I haven't written any like UI code yet. But then I was like, okay, what about pagination? And this is where like things started to get really cool. So I was using Pagey because obviously, and 
Pagey has this metadata mode where instead of including their predefined like helpers for generating like a bootstrap pagination, stuff like that, it'll just give you metadata for like the total count, what page you're on, how many pages there are, stuff like that. So what I did was grabbed one of Tailwind UI's pagination components, piped all the pagey data metadata to it because of like, okay, for the next link, with Inertia, you can create, they give you a component called a link. And basically what it does is it does like the magic for the Ajax request to do all the re-rendering, things like that. And so literally it took me like 10 minutes to get pagey wired up to this projects component. And it's fast. It's just like you click next, data's there. It's cool. And the thing I was thinking about, this was yesterday. The thing I was thinking about when I was done was I could reuse this component anywhere in this app. And I mean, you could do that like in Rails and stuff too, but because like all the JavaScript's wired up, I've hardly done anything. Like it just felt good. Going back to something you kind of said earlier is that a thing that I see people doing with view component that I think is wrong, not wrong, but you're missing the point, is that they're basically just replacing partials with components, right? And so their components are domain object oriented. And I think that's wrong. I don't believe that's how you should build your components. I think your components should, number one, they should not be domain-based, no no object-based at all, right? They should all be independent of an object. Because at the end of the day, the way to write really good components, I think they have to be very atomic, which is, again, something that Joel said they've had success with at GitHub. This is something that the React community has seemed to really kind of settle on, is that you build bigger components out of atomic ones, or maybe just build your page out of the atomic ones instead of like, I think a lot of people in Rails are like, okay, I have my post page. And so I'll just make a post component. I'll pass in my post object to that. And then I'll have all this chaining inside. I'll have all these train wrecks inside of this component. And I, I think you're kind of missing the point. And I think you have to kind of learn how React has kind of learned to leverage components in order, I think, to be able to leverage view component correctly. Because like the pattern that they are using is based off of what they've learned from React. So I don't know. Like I could show you my component page and I bet it would be very different, I think, from what you would expect. And I I would say one package that I've always really gone back to over and over again to see like an example of a really good component library is this component library from Seek OSS called Braid Design System. I think it's incredible. I think this is like how you should be building your UI. (laughs) Just for like a split second, I know listeners can't hear this. This is the last page I wrote with components. And for the listener, I'll describe it. It's for a post on my blog and there is no HTML on this page. It is just ERB, but it's just view components. And I have an article component, which just is more verbose than it needs to be. It's really what I view as a box component, but it's using like an article HTML element. And inside of that article component is a stack component, which is just basically a flex column. And then inside of that is a box component, which is just a div that I specify as a header. And inside of that is a header component is an H1, H2, H3, H4 that I say, like I specify the level. And then I have all of my of those types of headers defined. My components are not, they don't have any spacing inside of them, no margin. They do have padding, but no margin. So all of my margin 
and spacing is done independent of that. And I have specific components to handle that. Then I have a text component, link components, prose component, and then I have a, a description list component. Inside the description list component are description list items. And then inside of one of those description list items is a list, a straight up list component as in a UL that wraps list items, which themselves render link components. And all of these are, instead of being like trying to make components for my object, I'm creating components for the elements on the page. A text component is by standard without anything else, just a P tag with like maybe two basic classes on it. But then you can modify it. You basically just, I just wrap all my content inside of these and use the, the content variance that view component provides. So for a link component, I have an external link, just a normal link, and then I have like a nav link. And the way I specify which type of link it is just passing in a variant as opposed to I have a whole different component for it or like this or that. But by specifying the variant, it just modifies the classes that are default for that thing versus passing all the classes in or versus not being able to modify the classes at all. Because if you bake all of the classes in, that's where you're going to always run into issues, I think, where, okay, I wanted to use this component here and it doesn't work. And if you're trying to do that, then your component is either not small enough or you have assumptions baked into that component, which shouldn't be a part of it. And I think spacing is the biggest one. Any type of margin, really, like that should be kind of wrapped in some sort of spacing type of component, like a grid or a column or a stack or however you choose to call it. But if you don't have spacing inside of it, then you can easily, I can compose up other components, like I can take a header, a text, and a link. And if there's no spacing baked into all of them, I'll wrap them all in a component that specifically says, okay, there's large spacing. This is a column that has large spacing. And I think by doing things like that and going from the as most atomic as you can all the way up, it kind of seems like overkill in the beginning. But I think it'll, I hear time and time again, like, I can't reuse my components. I can't reuse my components. I can't reuse my components. And if you can't reuse your components, you're not building them correctly to begin with. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, then who's making sure that your application is running correctly? Is the app up? Are bugs plaguing your users? Do your cron jobs execute correctly? I don't have to worry about this because I have a secret weapon, Honey Badger. Honey Badger works with my unique workflow, is easy to set up on all my projects, and gives me peace of mind throughout the day. The best part is that Honey Badger has all the tools I need in an easy-to-understand UI with excellent documentation. I want to build features, not waste time trying to configure my tools, and Honey Badger provides that for me out of the box. Sign up for Honey Badger today and let them know we sent you. Thanks to Honey Badger for their continued support of the show. So I know that no one can see this, but it's a beautiful looking template. Yeah, the idea of components has been like my biggest struggle. Like that was one of the reasons like when I, we talked to Adam 20, 30 episodes ago, like I was really asking a lot of questions. It's so easy to do wrong and I uh, am really good at screwing it up. Having these React components pre-built by geniuses in design and react and stuff is also been kind of a lesson in like how to structure things. Cause these components are composed of other components. The layout one has like a transition component that wraps it, that handles the kind of animations, things like that. I don't have much more. I, I basically told you everything I'd done other than try and get an active link to work, which I did, but I definitely want to keep messing with it uh, and talk more about it. It's like our entire ethos on this show 
that we've never actually stated, but what I kind of believe it to be is that we all learn in public, right? Which yeah. is this kind yeah. of idea popularized by Sean Wang. We're willing to be vulnerable and we're willing to be like, we, we don't know this. We're not very good at this, but we're constantly talking in, about what we're doing and learning in public so that other people can learn with us and help us learn. So yeah, yeah. we're currently in investigating inertia. If you like inertia or you use it or you're interested, let us know. It feels kind of like controversial to be like, oh, I'm building a Rails app with uh, SPA, but it, it really feels good. It feels good because it's not a giant leap. Rails is completely isolated and this like headless thing talks to it. But yeah, inertia is cool. Give it a whirl. You didn't come on this podcast. You're like, guess what, man? This weekend, I checked out Inertia. It looked dope. Today, submitted a 10,000 line PR <laughs> to a Podia where I ripped out all that shit. And Andrea was like, let's ship it. Let's go. You know, yeah. it's, it's not Andrea like was the situation. first one to be like, yes, yeah. let's ship all React. <laughs> yeah, she just hit go. That's not what we're saying. We're saying like, this look cool. You're trying to further your learning and understanding of this, like, this ecosystem by playing with it in your spare time, which is what you should do because... The worst thing is when you work with someone who doesn't play with stuff like this on their spare time and they want to use your production app to live out all their FOMO. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I could very much see this. If it keeps going so smoothly, I'm sure I'll have hiccups, but I could very much see myself building like side projects in this because I like really, part of, maybe part of my OCD, I really want things to like look good, but I am not a designer. I don't want and to talk so, about this. <laughs> Yeah, no, let's go. Right let's oh, go. Oh my God. Like so much that I identify with that statement so much, like it, to a destructive level. It makes no sense. In theory, it sounds silly, but I get frustrated when I build products on the side that don't look good. I just feel like I'm wasting time. And I know that's not the best like lens to view it through, but it does bother me. Having a way to pretty easily use Tailwind stuff, is, it's the chef's kiss. Yeah. Shout out ADHD, our constant friend and protector of all things happy. I just, yeah. Uh, for me, this is a character flaw. Like I have this weird perfectionism around some of the things that I built. I really want them to look a certain way, but I don't even know what that way is. I just know what it's not. And instead, mm -hmm. I just waste time cultivating like a folder of a hundred different blogs that I like and what I like about them. But at the end of the day, I can't even, I don't even know what I want. I just know that I want it to be perfect. Right. Right. It's like when I see it, I'll know. But right. But I, I can't, I haven't seen it yet. And then when I try to like do it, I, ugh. like, I don't even know how to describe myself. <laughs> I feel like we're very much the same in that. Okay, you don't know what you really want the end result to be, but you know when you see it, you'll like it. But the problem is when you start like trying a hundred different things, you eventually get burned out in your head and nothing looks good anymore. So Right. And shout out and designers. I, yeah. I've realized that when I get like that, that sometimes that means that I'm typically procrastinating something else. Like when I'm mm -hmm. getting very perfectionisty with it. And typically what it is, is that I have not yet Writing content is not like I, I'm not good at it. I don't like to write content. I like to just write, but I don't like to write professional type text because I want it to be good and I don't know how to make it good. So instead, I procrastinate actually doing the actual work of, okay, I need to actually just decide what this needs to say and what needs to be on this page. And I procrastinate that by just, just by pushing pixels. 
there's some kind of lesson in here about the way you get better is by continuing to do it, but I'm not qualified to give that lesson. So the lesson of this is just don't have ADHD. <laughs> just yeah, just stop. Yeah, just stop it. Oh my god. Oh, if, if only. If, right. I just changed my ADHD meds. Yeah. Vivance. I'm on Vivance. Okay. I had this cool tick the first few weeks. Mm-hmm. We're like, I only, I just want to keep pushing my like front teeth out of my mouth with my tongue. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I know about that life. But it uh, went away. So, it, yeah, I was going to say it goes away. All of the side effects go away as soon as you're dependent on it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. As soon, as soon as it becomes your new normal, then all the side effects just go away. Right. I've been taking Vivance for years. And like, I, on one hand, like, it's been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And, and on the other hand, the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Interesting. I'm also on the highest dose. I started on very low. They just upped me. But it's been suppressing my appetite, which is good for me right now. Until it's not. Yeah. But we've been eating healthier again. So it's been nice to like not want to like binge eat and be eating healthy. So it's right. a win-win right now. But most importantly, I just like, I tweeted about it today, kind of. There's just something about sitting down like, couple hours later, like it kicks in and all my thoughts like that are like competing for attention have stopped and like I'm just working. It's very zen. Yeah. I mean, as long as you guide yourself to the right path, right? Because at the end of the day, like the Vivance can only help you focus, not help you focus on what you need to focus on. If I'm not careful, like all of a sudden, several hours later, I've done this thing that I'm like, wait, I was supposed to be doing something else. But instead, I just reorganized all my bookmarks. Yeah. Weirdly, a lot more people reach out to me and they're like, hey, I heard you have ADHD. They'll hear me talk about it on the show or like in my blog or something and they'll reach out to me and like, I love when people do that because it's like having ADHD like really, really sucks. It's one of those like mental diseases that like I think gets joked about a lot because it's very misunderstood, but like it really sucks. So like when someone else is like, hey, I'm also there with you, like it feels good. Yeah, I would have never thought that I had it. I, I guess it shares a lot of the same properties I've been told as like kind of OCD and anxiety mm-hmm. disorders, which it's possible I have both those two still. But yeah, it, that's, it coexists with a lot of others. It definitely targeting the ADHD alongside targeting the anxiety is like, it's helped me kind of chill out a little bit and I don't hate it. So. Yeah. Well, that's why they put me on Vivance because Vivance is also, it's a mood stabilizer, right? Which I find when I take my medicine, like my mood definitely is very stable because at the time I have manic depression. So like I go mm-hmm. through these swings and the Vivance, they were like, like before we look at anything else, let's try to get the ADHD under control. If we get that under control, it might alleviate the symptoms of the other stuff. And it definitely has. So that's good. Yeah. If you think you have it, I always tell people like one of two things. If you just want to know that you have it, right? Instead of just researching it for like days and days and just or like weeks and just like thinking like, oh, I have it, I have it, I have it, I know I have it. Instead of doing that, like if you are in the position and you're lucky enough to be able to like go get it verified, then you can do that without getting medicated for it. Right. Because I think like number, like obviously the me- I need my medicine because now I'm, like now I just need it. One of the best things I ever did for my ADHD was I got an ADHD coach that I met on Twitter, which 
changed so many things about it for me just because the things that like hurt you when you have ADHD, having an ADHD kind of coach was a lot more helpful for me than being in like therapy with a therapist, right? Because I didn't need a therapist. Like I know what's wrong with me. I know these things. But having someone be like, did you call the doctor? I'm like, no. And they're like, call them right now. Just put me on hold. Now, all of a sudden, I have to confront this thing that I may have been like neglecting for months and months for no reason. Now it's just done and helping me do other things and like showing you where you're stopping yourself. Hmm. You know, there's I've not heard there's of mental, a, mental a coach. For Andrew Jason. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll get the name of the woman I did with. She was freaking awesome. Do you think we'll ever record an episode without Chris and not talk about mental health? Maybe. No. I'm going to go with no. That freaking normie Chris. Not just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the woman I did it with, her name is Dusty Chapura. She's on Twitter and I'll link it. And like I said, I did a few months with her and it, it was so, so helpful. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I like it so far. Good vibes. Well, anything else? We have one Ruby thing. We talked about before the show, like there wasn't a ton that I found this week, but one thing that happened, which is pretty cool, is that Rails 7 is going to support cross-cluster associations, which is something that was upstream from GitHub. So Eileen wrote a really good blog article on it, on GitHub's blog, which we will link. And I told you before the show that I don't really know enough about what this means to comment on it. But yeah, cross-cluster associations. I guess what this means is that if you have databases in different clusters, you can correctly get like associated records, but I don't really, why would you have them in just, I think where I'm stuck is like, why, I don't know why you would have them in different clusters to begin with. I haven't read it yet, but it's cool. It's cool that GitHub keeps like putting out, what's the term for it? Upstreaming all this stuff back into Rails. It's cool. Yeah. I don't know if you were at the talk, but uh, Eileen had a, a, I think it was a Rails comp talk uh, two or three years ago, talking about how GitHub did all of this work to get off of their custom forks from Ruby and Rails, and that they were confident that once that happened, they were going to be able to start actually contributing a lot of stuff to Rails. And it, that has definitely, that definitely happened. That's GitHub has been upstreaming a ton of stuff into Rails. So shout out to them. So I'm kind of like speed reading through this because I took a speed reading class when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't, it was, it's messed up my reading comprehension. It looks like this feature came out of. There's 15, so there's 15 primary databases, 15 replicas, but they are splitting up like the schema across the 15 primaries. So I guess there's, I mean, I'll need to read more about this. I guess there's something here about like when you, this is about associations, right? So if you have many and that associations on another table in a different database, a different yeah, the that's fascinating. That is some mind-boggling stuff right there. Yeah, I'll read this one section of it just because people out there are like, they're reading, then I think they may be having ideas, but I'm not sure what they are and like because we're not sure they are. But at GitHub, we have 30 databases configured in our Rails monolith, 15 primaries and 15 rec- replicas. We use functional partitioning to split the data, which means each of these 15 primaries has a different schema. In contrast, a horizontal sharding approach would have 15 shards with the same schema. But they don't. They have 15 primaries with different schemas. So what they were having to do weird things with MySQL to join across 
clusters, which wasn't performant and it required weird setup stuff. And so with these workarounds, attempting to join a table in cluster A to a table in cluster B would result in an error. And to work with the limitations, we had to write custom SQL and all this stuff, which was error prone. So now looking at the inheritance change on blah, 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 blah. Yep, yep, yep. So cool. The conclusion is that now Rails 7 will have support for handling association across databases, which is something like if you're at scale, this is something you have to do. So Rails can't scale. Jokes on you. <laughs> hey, and look at us learning in public. Right? We just did it live. <laughs> well, there's our episode title. Yeah. Andrew and Jason just learn live. Learning. <laughs> we'll do it live, Jason. It's <laughs> my favorite gift. Uh, it's good. <sighs> All right. Here we are. All right. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to uh, you later, dude. Yeah, good to be back. So talk soon. Peace.